and they shouldn't back off the, the need to drive to drive short-term answers to key business questions, but they should also take the time to understand the reasons why data teams and technology teams build platforms for the long term. Welcome everyone to the show. Today we have with us a wonderful guest. We have Randy Bean. He's a CEO and founder of New Vantage Partners and we'll soon uh, talk about his wonderful book, Fail Fast and Learn Faster. So with that being said, um, Randy, welcome to the show. Michelle, nice to see you and delighted to be here today. Thank you. So walk us through your journey like what brought you to today like explain us your ride thus far yeah i've been in the data field for uh, longer than i care to uh, mention sometimes but it's been over a generation and i started in the context of uh, financial services by, by training i was not a technologist i was actually trained in the humanities literature and history, and, and uh, we'll come back to that later and how I came to write a book. But I was uh, hired by uh, a major bank, a top 10 bank at the time, Bank of Boston, which is now part of uh, Bank of America, founded in 1784. And I was uh, hired to uh, be a COBOL and assembler programmer. I was trained in both of those skill sets. Uh, but when I was uh, assigned responsibilities, I was responsible for the bank's deposit uh, accounting history. And what I saw was a vast repository of information on the bank's customers dating back years and years, all of their transactions, their various activities. And I said to my colleagues, uh, what do you do with this information? And their response was, well, you know, the regulators make us hold on to it for seven years and then we're free to destroy it. And I said, oh my God, uh, what, what a lost opportunity. And that really uh, set me on the uh, track that I've been on for the past uh, generation really, which is how can organizations take the data that they have, capture it and leverage it and analyze it to learn more about their customers, to learn more about their organization, to compete more effectively in, in a changing environment. And uh, one of the things I'll talk about when we get into the book is the, um, urgency now more than ever uh, for organizations of all kinds, not just businesses, but uh, governments, academic institutions, public health organizations to be data driven. So that's a, a key theme of my book now more than ever. Awesome. So walk us through um, New Vantage Partner. What What is that organization? What do you do there and what it is? Because uh, you founded this. So walk us through the some of the history. Behind that. Yeah, I founded uh, New Vantage Partners in 2001, so we've been operating for 20 years. Uh, we work exclusively with uh, Fortune 1000 companies uh, engaging at the C-level as senior uh, strategic advisors, but focus exclusively on data and analytics. So as a company, we're focused on four things, uh, helping organizations leverage data as an enterprise asset, Two, helping organizations become data-driven. Three, helping those organizations build a lasting data culture that will sustain their efforts to become data-driven. And then fourth, identifying opportunities to innovate with data in their business. So um, about 80% of our work is with large financial services firms. We work with most of the major banks, insurance companies, asset management and payment firms. 
And then the majority of our remaining 20% is with uh, leading healthcare and life sciences providers. I think, uh, and, and thank you for walking us through that. So one thing that uh, I found really fascinating um, uh, in, in, in your background, so you said Fortune 1,000 companies you, you worked with, and uh, primarily those companies are larger, slightly more mature in their, in, in their establishment. And, and when, you, when you look at um, the, the, the times today or the challenges that we are facing as a society today, um, uh, like I, there, there, this, I was talking to a statistician and he was saying, Vishal, you know what? When as an industry, we see one S curve disruption, one S hype curve, it's fascinating. But right now we have multiple technology, multiple um, uh, business concepts going through their own hype, uh, their own S-curve disruptions, and there's there's a there's a collision between those disrupting trends that are happening, creating a lot of anxiety, a lot of shake, a lot of uh, um, uncertainty in the industry. From your vantage point, when you look at say Fortune 1000 companies, which are based on very strong foundation of the um, sort of um, mindset and and now when they are when you're seeing this rapid transformation like basically disrupting industry what are you seeing some of the trends there well one of the main uh, purposes that i try to bring to this book it, it's you know for a number of years uh, let me back up a little i've been writing um regularly for the past decade for um Harvard Business Review, MIT Sloan Review, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. And it all really began in about 2012, 2013, when, the, when big data basically became a, a household term. You know, historically, data was really kind of relegated to the sidelines. But then uh, in the early 2010s, the popularity of data increased significantly. And it was at that time that I was asked to write a monthly column on big data for the Wall Street Journal, which I did for two years before bringing it over to Forbes. And so what I've tried to do in the book is write from a historical perspective. So basically, what's happened over the past generation? What have we learned and what haven't we learned? And what are the implications going forward for the coming years, decades, and even next generation? So I'd make a few points. One is that when I first started in the business 35 plus years ago, people were saying, how can we learn more from the data that we have? So they're still asking those same questions. So in many respects, uh, things change, but they also remain the same. One of the things that's happened is data continues to proliferate exponentially, uh, new sources of data. Um, continued growth of data, and also uh, unstructured data, which organizations are really at their infancy in terms of analyzing and mining. So it's one of my contentions based upon my experience working with these Fortune 1000 companies and also in writing the book, that we're really just at the beginning of the information revolution or the data revolution. It's only within the past decade that leading Fortune 1000 companies have even begun the process of identifying a senior executive at the C-suite level, the chief data officer, to uh, basically be the champion for data or the responsible executive for data within those organizations. And 10 years ago, based upon an annual survey that we do of Fortune 1000 C executives, only 12% of firms had appointed a chief data officer. And today it's roughly two thirds. 
but at the same time, uh, our survey shows and also report in the book that two thirds of those organizations report that the CDO is still in a nascent stage, struggling with turnover. I wrote a piece in uh, Harvard Business Review two weeks ago with a colleague of mine, Tom Davenport, who wrote Competing in Analytics. And the article is called something to the effect of why is the chief data officer tenure so short? We begin the article by talking about, you know, 25, 30 years ago, people thought that CIO stood for career is over. It's a lot like that for chief data officers now. The average tenure uh, based upon research that we did with various uh, recruitment firms is about two and a half years. Some of the Fortune 1000 organizations we work with are on their fourth, fifth, and sixth iteration of the chief data officer role. I was speaking with a chief data officer for um, a very large insurance organization who had moved from a top four bank uh, about four months ago. And this person was noting to me yesterday that that bank had gone through six chief data officers. And I said, well, that's precisely the point that I make often when people say, when I say sometimes that some organizations are on their sixth chief data officer, they say, you must be exaggerating. But in fact, that's the reality. So. Just to take a step back, the book is intended to provide a historical perspective because trends come and go, but um, data proliferates over time, technology and computing power advances. So this is something that's uh, transformational at, at a cultural and historic level, and it's manifesting itself over a couple of generations. So um, let's, so, we, 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 so we'll talk about the data and we'll talk about the book, right? So let's, what I'm curious to learn from you is, so Fortune 1000 companies, how are they dealing with the, the current times? How are they dealing with when it comes to the, the innovation or the disruption that are happening in the industry? Um, if you can walk us through from, from your vantage point, uh, helping these, assisting these companies through disrupt disruption, through data-driven strategies, through building a data-driven leadership, what have been your stark observation um, that you are seeing in, in, in current times, some, some of their challenges that they're, that they're facing? Yeah, well, one of the major uh, insights of the survey that we conduct each year based upon our work with Fortune 1000 organizations are that these companies are really struggling. You know, they're large legacy organizations. They have vast volumes of data, but it tends to be fragmented and siloed. And there isn't necessarily incentives that have been established across the organization to promote uh, data sharing of any kind. So let me just share some data with you. Uh, we asked these questions. Are you driving innovation with data? In 2021, only 48.5% of these organizations reported that they were. Are you competing on data and analytics? Only 41.2% indicated that they were. Are you managing data as a business asset? Only 39.3% said they were. Have you forged a data culture? Only 24.4%. Have you created a data-driven organization? Only 24%. So what does that tell us? It tells us that there's a lot of work to be done, but that means there's also great opportunity. So organizations are striving and they're investing significantly in data initiatives and in data technologies and capabilities but there's many challenges and there's a long way to go before these organizations can say that they're driving innovation, that they're competing on data and analytics, that they've forged a data culture and they've created a data-driven organization. We can talk about some of those reasons, but 
the key factor that is creating such a demand for the data profession and the roles of the chief data officer today is that there's so much data out there, but organizations are really not fully capitalizing on the opportunities in front of them. Interesting. And and you you, you talked about um, high churn rate in chief data officer, right? So um, you said some some of the companies are in in their twelfth um, chief data officer roles, and um, and if you if you talk to many of these um, data leaders, um, so what has been your observation? Like why is is um, there is no certainty or there is no stability in understanding a data strategy for these organizations? Well, first of all, it's a new role. So uh, it's not unusual in that regard because there's no blueprint or playbook to, to follow. So organizations are figuring it out. I can tell you that a few things. Uh, first of all, when uh, major banks first established the chief data officer role in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, for many of those organizations, they thought they could hire a chief data officer and it was like checking a box and magically they would become data driven organizations have learned it's not nearly as simple as that. Another thing that's taken place is that uh, organizations have unrealistic expectations of what the chief data officer can achieve. There's no, been no firm delineation of what the roles and responsibilities of the chief data officer is. Our survey shows that just under half of organizations uh, have, in just under half of the organizations, the chief data officer is the primary leadership point and central point of responsibility for data, but in more than half of organizations, it's still uh, spread out across other roles and responsibilities, be it the CIO, the CFO, and a quarter of organizations report that there's no single point of accountability. Uh, the last point that I'll mention right now is there's very different expectations for what makes a successful chief data officer. And actually, organizations, it's like a pendulum switching back and forth. So many organizations, uh, for example, have looked to bring in outsiders who are data professionals to be external change agent and bring new and fresh perspectives to their organization. But at the same time, other organizations have said, we really need an insider who knows our business and knows how to get things done within our organization. So one of the things that we've seen is an outsider is brought in but ultimately they fail because the organization doesn't have the appetite to change that quickly. So then the organization reverts to an insider who knows how to get things done internally, but they don't bring that urgency and that uh, change management agenda. So then the organization reverts back to the outsider and we see this going um, back and forth. So that's one of the challenges that organizations face. They're really only a decade into this new role and they're still learning. So I think so. You you brought a very interesting point. So uh, insider, right? So so I was I was I was talking to um, one of the uh, Fortune th Fortune 500 company uh, defense contractors. Uh, they provide weaponry to the to, to the U.S. government, and one of their chief data officer. Um, and 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 I was talking, and he was explaining me the misery in something called being data driven, right? So he said. Vishal, this word is thrown a lot. Like even my boss asked me, hey, how can we be data-driven, right? But then when you look at the size and as I said, the maturity of the organization, the culture is very thick uh, when it comes to disrupting and, and helping them understand 
the like it's like data meeting me, uh, meeting a story right so the story is pretty robust it has worked forever now you're saying okay no 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 there, there is something called data it it requires a cultural change it requires a habit change it requires so when and and i think so when when you talk about when you talk, when, when you talk to your organizations when you when, you, when in in your um in your experience dealing with this large organizations what are some of the some of the best ways some of the best practices that you have seen leaders utilize in in getting on this this bandwagon of being data driven faster than anyone could and 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 i'm not i'm not saying it's easy it's definitely hard but from your vantage point what are some of the some of the things that you have seen where it works for a leader if i'm a leader stuck in an organization how can i be data driven yeah let me come at this question a few different ways um so so first of all there's there's no magic bullets and no easy steps and it's a uh long-term journey and it's not a destination either in other words it's not a place where you get to and one day you say i'm data driven like king of the hill you have to stay data driven you have to fight and continue to improve each and every day if, if you want to stay there and i can talk about some of the more successful data-driven organizations, and those are ones that are always looking over their shoulder, never comfortable, never complacent. And when I worry is when I go into an organization and they say, we have it all figured out. Um, I, I, I could tell you a lot of stories. I could tell you stories about walking into organizations and meeting with the president of a line of business, and they say, yes, we'd like to bring your team in to work with us because we'd like to be data-driven within 60 days. <laughs> and I just, when I, when I hear that, I say, you know, it's, uh, you, you really have to reset your expectations because that that's not the way um, the, this world operates. Um, but to your point, uh, what we ask the survey participants, what's the principal challenge to becoming data-driven? And in 2021, 92.2% of the respondents indicated it was issues relating to culture, hmm. organizational alignment, change management, skill set, all of those factors. Only 7.8% pointed technology as, as the primary barrier. So, um, so yeah, it, it represents a change, uh, particularly because working with uh, Fortune 1000 organizations, most of which have existed for generations, if not well over 100 years, they've had ways of operating uh, that's been customary to their business. Data is an asset that flows across an organization, so it impacts um, everything that an organization does. Often we work with organizations to take them through a data lineage process so they can really appreciate where data originates, where it's consumed, where new data is created, uh, because up until that point, uh, again, for many organizations, particularly under executive, with their executive management, it's a uh, abstract concept. Sometimes um, executives will say to me, oh, not another data project. And I said, this is not just another data project. This is central to how you do business. If you don't understand who your customers are, if you don't understand how your products and services Perform. If you don't understand that the, the markets that you're participating in or trying to enter into, and if you don't have the data to make those decisions on an informed basis, you're essentially flying blind. So this is not just another data project. This is absolutely existential to your continuity as a business and your future growth of the firm. I mean, look at companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, among others. 
you know, they didn't exist a generation ago. You know, now they're among the largest market capitalization firms in the world. So you can be a large bank or insurance company and say, oh, well, you know, I have huge market of uh, customers that have done business with me for generations and generations. But look at Sears Roebuck, you know, they, they were at top of the heap uh, 25, 30 years ago. So things change. And particularly in this highly dynamic, evolving business environment in the digital age, companies really need to be aggressive about being data-driven or they're going to um, face a challenge sooner than later. I have a chapter in the book on disruption. And it borrow, begins, each chapter begins with a literary quote because I mentioned my literary background. So the chapter on disruption uh, begins with a quote from Ernest Hemingway from his, I believe it was 1927 novel, The Sun Also Rises. And one character says to the other, how did you go bankrupt? And the character responds gradually and then suddenly. And that's a great metaphor for disruption because um, you know things can just be sailing along, but there's forces that are operating independent of your business. And at critical junctures in time, those forces can overtake you. So if you're not prepared, if you're not uh, thinking about the future, and if you're not leveraging your data assets to the greatest extent that you can, uh, you may wind up in one of those situations where um, the disruption comes uh, gradually and then suddenly. That's, I think that's disruption is again a very interesting word. So um, uh, basically, I was reading this uh, innovators dilemma, right? So uh, basically, and 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 I I really want your perspective on it. So being data driven, right? So what what Christensen was suggesting was that hey, you look at the small trends. You say okay, let me just uh, make sure no trends get unchecked. And then you see a disruption happening, right? And there's a very small window, sliver window, where where you have to react as an organization to 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 grab a, a disruptive trend. So now I, I I keep quoting this conversation I had with this with with, with the BlackBerry uh, one of the product managers there, right? And and he was saying we were hitting all of our numbers. It was like we were data driven. We understand our customers. We had their pulse right, uh, our hand on their pulse. But the, the whatever the undercurrents were happening, right? It it totally missed us by surprise. And and if you if you look at um, say what data has given us over the last two years, whether you call it Brexit, whether you call it any elections, and our, our predictability on what we think could be delivered, it has not given a favorable rating of our reliability on data. So when when you look at when you look at those two trends, right? When you look at the importance of being data driven because you have you have better eyes you have better reaction abilities and then you see if if you your data is your analysis is as good as your data right or as good as the sources you're pulling it from how do you grapple the this this phenomena yeah let me speak to that um in two ways so, so since you mentioned clayton christensen uh, and the Innovator's Dilemma, one, one of the books that I've always admired is uh, Crossing the Chasm by mm. Jeffrey Moore. Mm. And uh, so, so Jeffrey Moore wrote uh, one of the praise blurbs that appears on the back cover of the book. But it's interesting because he looks at all from, uh, he's actually a PhD in English, but he brings this physics mindset. So I just want to read a little bit 
uh, from his quote because I think it speaks to your question. Uh, so he says, big data is indeed crossing the chasm that separates early adopters from the mainstream of enterprise customers. As Randy Bean makes abundantly clear and fail faster and faster, this crossing is by no means smooth. Through a wonderful horde of business anecdotes, he shows over and over again that the challenge of becoming a data-driven business has little to do with the big data itself. It is only marginally about mastering the technology needed to harness it. Rather, it is primarily about leadership teams finding forcing functions that can drive massive changes in the roles, processes, and systems that make up their enterprise. For some, the forcing function will be regulatory demands. For others, a global market demanding draconian cost reductions. For others, an emerging competitive threat from digital disruptors. And still for others, a mission to solve customer problems that can be not, cannot be addressed by conventional means. And then he closes, as a reader of Randy's book, it is your job to determine the forcing function that will drive change for your organization and draw upon this wealth of examples to navigate your way forward. So, um, so what he's highlighting is, you know, the, the major transformational context. But to your, to your point about the gap between data and, and analytics, uh, I try to, in the store, in the book, try to illustrate these points through stories. I try to fundamentally be a storyteller. And one of the stories that I tell near the end of the book is that uh, about a decade ago, I happened to be reading just independent of work, uh, my college alumni magazine. And lo and behold, I saw that a former college housemate of mine had been appointed uh, Secretary of Defense for Research and Development with some extra astronomical budget of like two or $3 trillion or, or some really large number. And that one of his primary mandates was to how to, how to figure out for the Pentagon how to leverage big data. So I uh, dropped him in an email and I said, oh, congratulations on your new role. It's been a number of years since we've been in touch. And oh, guess what? You know, this is what I do, big data. Uh, and here's a link to some of my articles. And he read a few pieces and he said, can you come to the Pentagon to speak to a group in a couple of weeks? And I said, uh, sure, why not? Wasn't the typical audience that I speak to. I, I had been on tours of the Pentagon. But that was it. So I uh, flew to DC, went into the Pentagon, went through so many levels of security that I was basically stripped of er everything I owned except for my clothes. And I walked into a room and there was about 18 people sitting around a table, about six of them had on full stars and bars, you know, military decorations, generals, leaders of that kind. Another half dozen were in uh, camouflage fatigues and another half dozen were in uh, full on business suits. I had no idea who was in charge, <laughs> but immediately they said to me, uh, the reason why, you, why we asked you here is uh, we're executing campaigns and we spend 80% of our time on data preparation and 20% of our time on analysis to take action. And we'd like to learn how Fortune 1000 companies are doing this because we assume that uh, they're, they're spending much less time on data preparation. Mm -hmm. So there were two things I learned. Uh, first of all, when I went in, we'd go into American Express or other places and talk about campaigns, they were talking about lift on market generation of new customers. But I quickly realized at the Pentagon, they were talking about drone strikes and activities of that kind where they needed very precise information to make uh, decisions rapidly based upon limited information. 
But I also then had to disabuse, the, disabuse them of the notion that private industry was doing it any better, that there was any magic or silver bullet, and that the reality was that, at least at that time and for much of the continuing presence, an extraordinary amount of time goes into data preparation, and it's only when those processes are gone through that there's uh, data that's of a quality that can be analyzed. And, you know, we can talk about and debate the points about, you know, how precise does the data need to be, and for marketing campaigns, it can be in directional and so forth, but um, for drone strikes, it has to be pretty precise. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a fair point. So, so uh, whenever I hear, I hear a lot, of, when, whenever I hear about the um the maturity of your understanding of data right so i think this one interesting story that always comes to my mind i recently started my consulting career helping businesses understand data and and strategize with it and and one of my client was one of the largest uh, financial services uh, bank and pretty known for its data pretty known for its technology and and i went and i said okay show me show me your technology stack show me your your data stack and they say most of our data is hanging around in excel spreadsheets so I said, wow, like uh, that was a, after that I start breathing easy and saying, okay, don't worry, you still survive because I've seen uh, heroes using the, the bare bone tools uh, survive as well. So I think I, I, I totally, I totally resonate with what, what, what you observed with the, with the Pentagon story there. And I think in, and other piece, I really want your perspective on. So um, I remember talking to one of the one of the oil rig. Um, uh, so one of the business unit head uh, president, and and did, I think there was some confusion on like how, how. So their struggle was to to increase the the collaboration between the data office and the president and basically the business unit in utilizing it insights right, and uh, basically in, in one of the conversation. The president and data office, sir, we sat in the room and we're, we're talking about it. And I said, what are your struggles or what is your best day? The data officer said, my best day is if this guy talks data, right? That's, that's my, that's, I, I can, I can go home early. Life is successful and all that. And then I asked, okay, the president, what is your best day looks like? He said, my best day is if this guy talks English, right? I barely understand what a, a single word he said. So I think that and, and, and your last story about um, the importance of story in, in basically in communicating, that's super critical. So what has been your observation in, in basically abilities of these business units, these large organizations in better storytelling to empower their culture? Because you rightly pointed out one of the one of the leading cause of the confusion is the culture that's 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 very difficult to shift so what has been your observation yeah well i think that's a exceptional question great question so let me share let me just describe a a, a few stories so um some number of years ago i went into a large insurance company uh met with a president of one of their line of business heads i was with one of my colleagues at the time who was an mit phd in high performance computing so for 55 minutes, my colleague regaled this uh, president CEO with the ins and outs of cardinality and ordinality and all types of data types. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was like sitting in a college PhD physics class and it was absolutely fascinating. I, I had heard it before, even though I'd heard it many times, I still was able to understand about 20%, but I knew it was absolutely brilliant. 
So I never said anything through the meeting. Um, the guy asked a couple of questions and then, but he seemed completely engaged. And at the last two minutes of the hour, he turned to me, put his hand on my arm and he said, so what exactly does this mean? Hmm. And I said, it means that you can do it faster, cheaper, more cost effectively, and you can do a better job of competing with your customers. And he said, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> So uh, one of my, learnings from that is that ever since I started writing for the Wall Street Journal and subsequently in uh, Harvard Business Review and MIT Sloan Review and so forth, I always try to, um, first of all, I'm always writing with CEOs in mind mm. and trying to make complex technology concepts understandable to CEOs. So, so I joke, but I'm only half kidding. I say that I try to write everything that I write at a third grade level. So that you know, people don't have to guess; they don't have to figure out. It, it, it's so uh, abundantly clear. And um, you know, I guess professionally, in my career—that's the thing that I learned early on. It's not about being the smartest person in the room or trying to be smarter than the other person that you're presenting to. It's, it's trying to make sure that they understand. And I had a colleague once many years ago that he would ask uh, technical colleagues to explain something. And they do it the first time and say, uh, I don't understand. And so they do it a second time and say, yeah, I still don't get it. And they go a third time and go like, yeah, you know, maybe it's me, but I'm not really getting it. And it forced them, absolutely forced them to put it in as plain a term. So ultimately it becomes understandable. And, you know, when I'm interviewing uh, client organizations for case studies, whatever I'm doing, I mean, I will ask the same questions mm. 10 times until it can be translated into something that's understandable. And I, and I wrote the book really for three audiences. One is I wrote it for um, business executives, C-level executives, CEOs, board members, so they could understand really what the impact and why data was critical, critically important to their organizations. I also wrote it for general readers who have been hearing all about um, positive data for positivity rates for COVID and the need to develop new vaccines and how the da- all the data is organized. So there's been more information, more data about data in, in the news over the past year or two years than any other time in history, be it even political polls and political campaigns. Like how, how do they say this person's leading or that person's leading? Um, so I, I really tried to write it for the general readers so they understood what the fuss was about. And then I also tried to write it for data practitioners. And what I did in that context is I provide case studies from roughly 25 uh, Fortune 1000 organizations so that those who want to dig deep can look at specific examples of what organizations like American Express, Capital One, MasterCard, Travelers, uh, organizations of that kind are doing to, to be successful and differentiate themselves. Interesting. So um, um, that's, a, that's a nice segue. So let's let's get on the book, um, uh, the meat of the stuff. So by the way, fascinating title. Um, tell us the story behind the title, Fail Fast, <laughs> Learn Faster. Yes, it's actually, uh, so, so I'll give you the uh, little bit longer story. So uh, I mentioned I was studied literature when I was in college and a few years ago, uh, I'd also like to watch professional tennis. And I was, I think I was, I traveled to Paris, I think to see the French Open and they had the uh, Swiss tennis player, not Roger Federer, the other one, Stan Warenka. And uh, he was in, in the finals and I noticed this massive tattoo 
up and down his arm, but it was writing. And I, I was trying to get a glimpse and see what it was. And then I, I, I saw what it said was, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. And I said, like, wow, where did that come from? And I looked it up. And it was actually the Irish playwright Samuel Beckett, who, who's most known for writing the uh, existential play Waiting for Godot. So I thought that actually that this was a tremendous metaphor for what organizations really need to do to become data-driven. They, they can't wait. Uh, they can't you know, experience analysis, paralysis. Perfection is the enemy of good. That's, a, a, um, that's another quote from the French writer Voltaire. But the point is, is that um, organizations need to take action, and I, and I can elaborate on that. And action is really a fuel for, for, for innovation. And that, um, you know, Paul Sappho, the futurist, states that, um, that uh, failure is the foundation for, for innovation. So uh, that's really what, and in data science, there's the notion of test and learn. So all of these ideas of iterative learning, shorter cycle times uh, lend itself, and that's where I came up with the title fail fast and learn faster. And it's really kind of a, a mantra or um, a manifesto, uh, a call to action for organizations to uh, take action, learn from their experiences, and keep on going uh, and sustain their efforts for the long term. Interesting. And um, why write this book? Like, so there's a lot of books on, on, on data nowadays and, and basically pushing this idea of data literacy and be data aware. I'm curious, like what made you, um, you write this book? Yeah, uh, a couple different reasons. One is that I, I had resisted writing a book for uh, a number of years. Publishers had reached out and saying, you're writing all of these articles. Uh, I was forced to count them fairly recently. Somebody said, how many articles did you write? And I said, I think it's 150. And I actually counted them. And this was back in March or April. And it was like 156, I was just guessing. But by now it's about 175 in those publications. Um, so I, I've been asked to, to, to write a book and I said, you know, if I'm gonna write a book, you know, I wanna write War and Peace or The Great Gatsby or something of that kind. I don't think I wanna write a book on data. But um, COVID came along and you couldn't travel and was heading to a long, dark winter last year. So I said, yeah, I, I will do the book. I'd never done a book before. I was used to writing the articles. Uh, they said, you know, can you get us a half manuscript in three months and a full manuscript in six months? And I said, probably. I've never done it, but I assume I can. I spent about a month thinking about the structure of the book, but when I arrived at the structure, I started writing and basically I gave them a full manuscript within six weeks, which they accepted. And so the whole publication date was accelerated by um, half a year. Um, but one of the driving themes was the uh, urgency. And so he, I just wanna read from the very opening lines of the book because I think this sets the tone. It begins, the world is in a race to become data-driven, now more than ever. The warp speed effort to organize scientific and epidemiological data from across the globe in a heroic effort to find a COVID-19 vaccine has illustrated the urgency and existential nature of this quest. We need data, science, facts, knowledge, and insight to make informed, wise, and critical decisions. Now more than ever, data matters, and having good data matters tremendously. 
So that's really a driving theme throughout the entire book that, um, you know, data and becoming data literate and becoming data driven is not a luxury. It's not something to say, oh, you know, we're going to put that somewhere on the priority list for 2023 or 2024. If you're not doing it today, if you don't have a sense of urgency, then um, God help you. <laughs> so, so by the way, um, <clears throat> one, one little joke on your book. So I, I was discussing within my within my team and, and one of my marketing person said, Vishal, you know, you know what, how can I make this book better to resonate with Fortune 1000 companies? I said, how? He said, just lose the L in learn. So just so it just reads fail fast, earn faster. So I said that's, that's brilliant. <laughs> so this, yeah, oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> so so, anyways, um, uh, thank you for for walking us through through that. So now, um, I think let's talk about maturity a bit. I think the the uh, when I was reading this book, I think what 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 stands out is your urge to helping, basically tell business you have to be data driven. You have to understand your data. You have to understand your silos. So. From that aspect, over last 20 years or how, how many years you have been uh, helping, assisting these businesses, how have you seen the, the understanding of maturity evolve for these organizational leaders? Like, Can you walk us through that? Yeah. Um, I, I say a few things, and that is, is that um, maybe this speaks to recommendations for success. I think that organizations, from my experience, have to be very focused on business value. Often there's, uh, or sometimes or often there's an inclination to uh, create technology. I won't say for the sake of creating technology, but sometimes it's building the perfect platform that's going to serve an organization for a long period of time. But the problem is, is that business executives get measured in quarters, okay? So there is no long period of time if you don't uh, achieve success from quarter to quarter. So it's very common for me to go into organizations and meet with their data teams and they tell me all about the robust capabilities they've created and they're justifiably proud of those capabilities. Then I'll meet with the technology organization and they'll share with me the architecture and platform and engineering and it's very robust and they're very proud of what they've created and they talk about how it provides a long-term platform for the future. And then I go and meet with the line of business executives, the presidents of the line of business who have ultimate responsibility. And they say, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't have confidence in our data. We don't trust the data that we're receiving. We're not always receiving the data that we need to make the decisions that we make. We're not receiving the data that we need with the timeliness that we need to make these decisions, particularly in a digital world. So what we see is this gap between the business decision makers that have to yield these quarter to quarter results and teams that are creating capabilities that may well serve the organization for the long term. But there's this gap between translating that into business value in the short term. So one of the things that we continually advise organizations to do is begin by identifying one simple business question that you're not able to answer today and identify what is the data that you need to answer that those that question. You don't need all of the data. You don't need a full universe of data. You might just need a, a handful of uh, information or um, you know vectors to, to be able to make that determination. So provide that, provide those that data, 
allow the business person to answer that question, and that establishes an initial level of trust and credibility. And then working with the business business um, owner or executive, identify a, a second key business question that's unsolved. And then again, repeat that process. By repeating that process, it builds trust, it builds credibility. And when you repeat it multiple times, then it builds momentum. So we see successful organizations as having established that credibility, trust, and momentum, but it really happens one step at a time and it really starts small. Somebody said, well, how does that correlate with your title, fail fast, learn faster? And I said, I didn't say anything about starting small yet. You have to start somewhere uh, to, to, to get big, regardless of, you know, Amazon, Jeff Bezos started in like a tiny office, you know, 25 odd years ago. So, um, yeah, so sometimes you just need to start small to build that credibility and trust, and then you can create that momentum that creates the escape velocity to quote uh, Jeffrey Moore again. So I think that that's a that's a fair point. So if if I'm a leader um, listening to this 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 conversation, um, what advice would you give? And 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 I'm not I'm I'm not a data scientist. I'm probably the dreamer. I'm the guy who's making life harder for a data scientist to to live in this organization. So how would you? Because I think um, if 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 you talk to if you talk to the data data side side of the world, right? Um, they all complained about trust. Right? They all complained about how much the other business units are either not sharing data or not collaborating effectively, or they don't they don't see our value fast enough so they can collaborate with us better. And it's a constant back and forth between the business units and these data offices. So, what would you tell to the leaders? Like, how would they they make make that cultural shift that is needed? That what your book demands, basically, from these organizations. Yeah, I think both sides need to put themselves in the other side's shoes fundamentally. So business leaders, you know, they 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 can't and they shouldn't back off the, the need to drive to drive short-term answers to key business questions, but they should also take the time to understand the reasons why data teams and technology teams build platforms for the long term. Uh, how, how they'll be better served, ultimately. Uh, the data and technology organizations need to really appreciate the fundamental short-term quarterly nature of, of business and business profits, and they might not like it, but it's the reality. And if your organization is not able to demonstrate those short-term results, as mentioned before, they, there isn't a long-term. Um, you know, it's it's funny because it hasn't happened this time around, but back in uh, when the financial crisis came in 2008, 2009, and the major financial services companies had to lay off hundreds of thousands of people, I often saw the data scientists among the first to go, or what was then the equivalent of the data scientists, because they weren't contributing something in many instances that had immediate value today in that moment. It was just people that were doing, providing some piece of work that had immediate value to basically keep the company in business and keep the doors open to, tomorrow. So fortunately, we haven't been in that situation over the past um, close to 15 years now since then. But um, yeah, when push comes to shove and you get into really difficult situations, unless you can explain 
why you're adding value to today, um, you know, you might not have a role. You know, we're in a fortunate and luxurious situation now. Uh, the data profession is rich and robust and, and booming, but, you know, t t times change and we don't always have that luxury. Yeah, no, I think it's funny. So um, about 10 years back, uh, whenever you talk to data scientists, like it's was funny, like how many of these guys used to say, I'm just an insurance policy for my CEO, right? My role is just, so he messes up, I'll get the boot, everyone is happy. So I just, I just have to stay long enough that he doesn't mess up uh, long enough so, so I, I can have a career in this organization. So it was it was hilarious. Now we don't hear it. I think that's a, that's a good sign that at least the organizations are getting, I think right now you can say chief security officer has, are those roles, but it's getting mature when it comes to understanding of uh, what, what data is. So by the way, uh, so thank you so much, Randy, on, on walking us on the book. Now let's, got, um, let's get on the next segment. We call it rapid fire. So basically... We we want um, uh, this. Is, so how it works is, we'll, we'll, I I'll, I'll usher something. Tell me what comes first thing that comes to your mind. Should we should we play? Awesome. So machine learning. Yeah. Well, machine learning is uh, basically a way. Do I think of a short answer? Yes. Well. It, it, Machine learning is what uh, most organizations are doing when they use the term AI. Fair point. Technology. Um, technology changes everything, but um, you know it always has to deliver business value. Leadership. Uh, leadership is uh, what differentiates those companies that succeed over the long term from their competitors. Future of work. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, well, I will say one thing. Uh, one of the things that's become pretty evident is uh, they had a great piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, which talked about um, people that live in, say, big cities where standard of living's high, New York, Boston, San Francisco, and now the people are working remotely, you know, from like ski resorts or islands. And they're saying, well, we don't have to pay you those big salaries anymore. So the reality is our remote work is going to change everything. People can probably be far more productive, but it's also going to, people are going to start to think about the economics of it too and say, well, you know, if you're working remotely and when you don't have meetings, you're out surfing or things of that kind, um, you know, we're going to pay you the same way or not. Fair point. Um, culture. Uh, culture is the heart of everything. It's the heart of my book. Uh, it's the it's the core chapter in the center. And really, um, culture. E each organization has its unique culture. There's no one size that fits all. And for any organization to be data driven or to transform in any way, they really have to have a inherent understanding of their culture and how they can leverage that. Uh, digital transformation. Uh, well, digital transformation really goes hand in hand with data. Uh, I mean, there's data that exists outside of digital transformation, but the two initiatives are so intertwined in every regard. So uh, in many respects, data is the fuel that enables uh, so much of digital transformation. And disruption. Uh, yes, disruption is uh, what takes you from uh, the the safe way of today to the uh, scary way way of tomorrow. Um, so you know, 
the disruption, that, that's how um, cultures, societies, businesses move forward. It's through uh, periodic disruption. Uh, future of organizations. Uh, future of organizations, I uh, don't have a, an opinion except for beyond uh, the increase in remote work. Data driven leader. Yeah, I look at organizations like Capital One uh, and compare those with the other major banks who have existed for generations and generations, if not centuries. Capital One is approximately less than a generation old. They started as data analytics leaders that brought the data analytics. Uh, mindset and way of thinking to financial services and they've become uh, certainly one of the most dominant uh, u.s banks in the credit card market and has have really set an example for how a traditional industry like banking can be completely disrupted and innovated by um, new competitors awesome so um with that thank you so much for, for playing with the rapid fire now we're at the tail end of the conversation and I want to spend a few minutes on your journey. So basically, we ask all of our guests to share um, some of the things that has helped, uh, helped them become successful or that has really contributed to their success. What are some of those qualities that has really helped shape you what you are today? Uh, one I'd say is uh, finding great mentors who uh, will give it to you straight and you can learn from. It's not always what you want to hear but it does you good to listen and learn from that experience. Uh, number two is surround yourself by uh, with people that are much brighter than you are. I, I always tell people that I'm like the least intelligent person in my firm. You know, a number of my colleagues are uh, past and present are um, MIT and Yale PhDs, um, and, and they're almost all, uh, you know, C executives with deep backgrounds, both educational and business-wise. So surround yourself with people that are um, smarter than you are. Interesting. Um, thank you for, for, for sharing that. So um, some of your favorite reads, some of the favorite books that, that have inspired you or, or that you're reading right now? Well, you know, that's kind of funny because um, I, 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 it's rarely that I read business books. <laughs> so, so that's kind of funny. But I, I read a lot of literature uh, because that's what I studied in history. So be it uh, things that range from, and, and people say, do, do people really read those books? But I, I do. Uh, you know, War and Peace, The Great mm. Gatsby, you know, Moby Dick, uh, the French writer Camus, any of his works, The Stranger, The Rebel, The Fall, uh, The Plague. Um, yeah, there's so many uh, great writers writing today. There's a lot of uh, great historians. Uh, uh, Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You know, there's lessons in that for, for all of us. So um, I, I'm just a great fan of literature and history because I find these things that have been written uh, generations, centuries, or thousands of years ago hold lessons for us today. Interesting. Thank you for walking that. So now as, as a closing remark, so if you want something for uh, that our listeners and viewers can take away from the conversation, what would be what would that be? What would be your closing thought? Yeah, I believe in the power of telling stories. You know, that's what I tried to do in the book, Fail Fast, Learn Faster. I think uh, stories bring things to life. Uh, it puts things in uh, human terms. You asked me earlier, well, you are, aren't there a lot of data books? 
I was trying to write a data book that um, transcended the genre, so to speak. It's not a data book for data geeks. Uh, data geeks can find a lot of good stuff in there, but it's really written for a, a wide audience so that anyone and everyone can really understand the opportunities and the challenges presented by data. Awesome. With that, uh, thank you so much, Randy, for, for spending your time with us. And thank you for the amazing book. So what's, I'm curious, what's next on the book? Um, I'm just doing uh, a lot of speaking and presenting to different audiences. I'm doing a lot of executive uh, sessions for Fortune 1000 companies, meeting with their executive teams to really share my experiences and the learnings and the stories of the book. And that's one of the things that's that's most gratifying. Awesome. Uh, so, and, 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 and if someone is interested, where can they, where can they reach you? Uh, yes, uh, I invite you to follow me on LinkedIn. Randy Bean, uh, um, just go on LinkedIn and you'll find me on Twitter at Randy Bean MVP, uh, New Vantage Partners, www.newvantage.com. And there's also the 150 plus articles I mentioned, plus the 10 years of the executive survey you'll find there, plus a number of uh, podcasts with Harvard Business Review and Sloan Review and other places. So those are uh, some of the best ways to find me. Awesome. With that, Randy, thank you so much and wish you nothing but success on the book. You're always welcome back on the podcast, um, sharing your journey and, and lovely to have you on the, on, on the show. Vishal, it was a pleasure and uh, great questions. I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much. Um,